Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hello, I'm Michael Hawk, and this is Nature's Archive. Each episode, I strive to bring you the very best guests to help us deepen our understanding of nature. I produce the podcast as a personal passion, so if you enjoy it, will you please consider subscribing, rating, and sharing this episode? It really does help. You can also support me on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. With that support, you can get extras, previews, access to ask questions of my guests, stickers, and more. Check out patreon.com slash nature's archive. Now on to the show. As cities grow further into wildlands and natural habitats, and as animals attempt to adapt to these urban environments, it's inevitable that people and wildlife will come into more contact. My guest today, Jessica Wolf, works to help people and wildlife when these interactions occur. She's an urban wildlife coordinator for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. As an urban wildlife coordinator, Jessica educates the public and fields calls from the public. These calls include questions about unexpected animals in people's yards and houses and reports of sick or injured wildlife in the city. And occasionally, Jessica is dispatched to assess, capture, move, or otherwise help animals in distress. Today, we discuss the most common wildlife encounters that Jessica handles, ranging from coyotes to bats to raccoons to fledgling birds. These topics allowed us to get into some of the natural history and urban adaptations that these animals have as well. Jessica also answers listener questions about bat boxes and fox burrows and adds some insights into some of my own backyard wildlife observations. I know that I'm coming away from this conversation with a better perspective on what it means to offer resources, either intentionally or unintentionally, to wild animals. So without further delay, Jessica Wolf. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, I think that what we're going to talk about today follows a theme that often comes up, and that's one of human and wildlife interactions, especially in urban or suburban areas. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say since you actually work in in that realm. Yep, it is my whole world right now. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into that, I I always like to find out a little bit about my guests and uh, in particular, where did you grow up and what led you down this path of interest in nature? Yeah, I spent most of my childhood in Reno, Nevada. We moved here when I was about seven, so the majority of my life has been spent here. And um, I was privileged enough to live in an area where I could get outside whenever I really wanted to. My house backed up to a nature trail, and there was a creek back there, so I would always spend hours during the summer catching crawdads and hanging out in the water and then watching hours and hours of Animal Planet, Crocodile Hunter, Jeff Corwin Experience, all of those shows really led me kind of down this path of loving wildlife and being super interested in it. And now I got to turn it into a career, which is super amazing. And not everyone gets to do that. So I'm super, super lucky. With that creek access, is there any experience that jumps out in your mind is like something that you tell people about still to this day? One summer, me and my cousin in one day caught over 100 crawdads which was pretty impressive. I was very excited about that. And then one story I like to connect back to is behind the creek, there's this big sagebrush habitat. And I remember being up in my mom's room one day looking down and looking outside and being like, oh my gosh, there's a dog out there. What is that? And then I quickly realized it was actually a coyote. And I remember when I was a kid, I was pretty freaked out about it. It was not something that I saw every single day. So it was a very life-changing experience in a sense. And now I get to talk about coyotes all of the time and I'm a super big fan of them. So I definitely shifted my scared feelings from when I was seven years old to now just being absolutely obsessed with them. 
I can't wait to get into the coyote subject, and I have lots of questions about them. So fast forwarding to today, what is your exact title? So I'm actually transitioning to the wildlife education coordinator, but for the past two and a half, three years, I've been the urban wildlife coordinator for the Department of Wildlife in Nevada, in the Western region. We've got two of us here. And what does a day in the life of an urban wildlife coordinator look like? Every day is super different. Yesterday morning, I spent my morning running after a goose with an injured wing in the Whole Foods parking lot. This morning, I came in and helped two people with some bat issues, a person with a morning dove that was nesting on an outdoor refrigerator. So every day is different from urban wildlife calls, helping people through issues that they might have, questions that they have, or even just going off. There's some education, some programming on living with coyotes. Tonight, I have a board of directors meeting down in Carson City where I'm going to talk about some of the critters that they have down there, why they're there, all that good stuff, teaching people how to live with animals. And I also create some of the content for our Instagram and Facebook, trying to just get out the message that we all live in urban environments, and in those urban environments are a lot of different critters. I think those examples you gave uh, of a goose, a morning dove, uh, bats, like those are examples that apply. You're, you're in Nevada, and obviously the habitats in Nevada are very different than much of the United States. But those three examples, I think, do apply to much of the United States. So I'm curious, when how did this goose call come to be? Was it a concerned citizen? Was the goose being aggressive? Like, like how did you get involved? And what what specifically were you looking to do? We got a bunch of calls, actually. The Whole Foods parking lot, like many areas, is a pretty busy zone here in Reno. We only have one, so there's lots of people around. So we got quite a few calls the day before, and I went out in the afternoon to try and remove it from that situation because being in a Whole Foods parking lot is not the ideal habitat for a goose, and people were going to continue to see it and be worried about it. So I wanted to try and remove it from that situation. And so I was out there for about an hour trying to track it down, but it was very mobile. It used its legs quite well. So went out there, couldn't find it, and then we got more calls in the afternoon and morning. So I went out in the morning to try and capture it then, and it was just hanging out by the Kidoba, sitting down. And I was like, yes, there's no one around. See me try and capture this thing, because it, it was quite mobile. So there was some <laughs> running involved, and I looked like a chicken with my head cut off, to be honest, <laughs> trying to capture it, but I was able to grab it um, and remove it from that situation so that it was no longer in the area. How do you capture a goose? Is it with a net, or did you like physically just grab it? Or No, I, had a, I have a big net that I use. Usually when they see you with a net, though, they know something's going on, and they're not super excited about what's about to happen. So it started to run off, and there was much running back and forth <laughs> while I tried to grab it, but I was successful. So in order to do that sort of work, what sort of training and education is required? So I took a little bit different path than other individuals. I was actually a psychology major in, at UNR, and I went and I worked in the solar industry for about two years down in Las Vegas, came back to Reno, and really wanted to make my passions my career. So I started off as an AmeriCorps member with the Department of Wildlife, and then I got to work on a botulism project. We actually had a big outbreak of avian botulism out at Carson Lake and Pasture during that summer, so I got to help the department out with that. And then I worked for retail for a little bit and then got my position as the urban wildlife coordinator. So a lot of it was learning on my own, teaching myself 
different things and then reaching out and connecting with other people in the field and creating those networks. So a lot of it was things that I learned while in my AmeriCorps position and then things that I learned from coworkers. It sounds like a lot of hands-on experience. And you and I actually met at the NAI conference. And what I can tell is it seems like strong communication skills. The NAI is all about communication and your background in psychology and what you're doing now. It seems like communication is a central point to a role like you have. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm talking to people every single day. I might have wildlife in my title, but it's definitely not a wildlife specific position. It's more connecting with people and teaching them how to live with the wildlife instead of actually being hands on the ground with the wildlife every single day. So that might mean telling people things that they might not be prepared to hear or may disagree with, but doing it in a way that can get the point across. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of that. The examples that you gave, it sounds like you receive calls from the community at large. Uh, do you find yourself working with certain segments of the community more often than others? Is it typically homeowners or property developers? Or do, do you get involved in early stages of development projects where there's wildlife involved? I've been involved in a few of those conversations, but typically it's more of our habitat division that takes over those conversations and works with developers and makes a big environmental impact write up what animals are there, what animals could be affected by that. That's one area that I'd like this position to get more involved in because I think there's a lot of upfront education that we could utilize in those situations, especially with how Reno is growing. I don't know if you are aware, but we're going quite a lot. We have new housing developments going all over the place. So trying to get people the education before they move in, because oftentimes developers will put a housing development in an area where there might be a lot of mule deer or a lot of bear activity, and they homeowners might not be as aware of what issues could come when they're buying their house. So trying to just let people know, hey, this is what you're getting into when you live out here, which is wonderful. Living near wildlife is an amazing opportunity to connect with nature. But there are some potential downfalls to that as well. So for people who have never been to Reno, can you set the scene? What's Reno like? What are some of the landmarks, some of the natural areas that are nearby? Yeah, so Reno is a really cool location. Um, we're about an hour and 15 minutes away from Lake Tahoe, so we're surrounded by mountains. We've got lots of sagebrush, pinyon juniper habitat around us. And then through downtown Reno, we actually have the Truckee River. So lots of opportunities for winter sports, summer sports, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, boating, so many different activities just right outside your back door. You're literally the east side foothills of the Sierra Nevada Hey, nature enthusiasts, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. 
Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So we get snow during the wintertime, four seasons. It's, it's a beautiful place to live. You talked about some of the issues that you handled just yesterday, <laughs> which sounds like you had your hands full uh, for one day. You know, this time of the year, we're talking in June, this uh, episode will either get published yet this month or in July. What are the typical sorts of issues that you do find yourself encountering? So during this season, uh, a lot of young wildlife issues come up. One of the biggest ones we get is people finding young birds on the ground and thinking that they're injured when they're actually just fledglings. Fledglings are young birds that have just come out of the nest and they're on the ground. and They'll be on the ground for a few days up to a week or two, and that's totally normal. We expect to see that. But if you're not aware of that part of the life cycle of a bird, it can be a little jarring seeing this small little bird hanging out on the ground seemingly helpless. So a lot of the calls right now are just helping people understand the life cycle of the birds and understanding that leaving them is the absolute best thing you can do for them. I often talk about it like it's like college for the birds. They get kicked out of the nest, but parents are still around helping out, but it's really important for them because they're going to learn how to find food on their own, how to use their wings, how to fly, all of those really important lessons that they really need to be able to become an adult functioning bird out in the world. So fledglings are a big one. And can I ask you a, a question? So I moderate a backyard wildlife group on Facebook. And this time of year, a lot of well-meaning people post exactly what you said, leave the fledgling alone. And somebody posted that and there was a response saying, well, I have neighborhood cats that roam. This is the person responding. I don't leave the fledgling alone. I'll relocate the fledgling up onto a platform so the cat can't reach it. And like I, I have lots of questions. <laughs> it's like, what does this platform look like? like uh, is it just going to jump down? It, it sounds kind of like a fruitless exercise that may have unintended negative consequences as well. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that scenario and what you would say? Yeah, during the springtime, especially spring and summer, we really ask people to keep their cats inside because that is certainly a human-caused issue when it comes to our wildlife. Cats are responsible for the deaths of billions of birds every single year, as well as mammals and reptiles and all of those things. So with that being said, knowing that young birds are going to be on the ground, if you are a cat owner, it's super important to just keep them inside. Or if you want to have them have some outside time, you can create a catio, which is fully enclosed, and they're not going to get access to any wildlife. It's also going to protect them, outdoor cats, typically will live shorter lifespans because of diseases and cars and more human-caused issues that kind of come up. So you can keep them inside or on a leash so that they don't have those negative impacts. As for putting the fledgling on a platform or something like that, like you said, I would imagine it would jump down pretty quickly and still be hopping around somewhere else. And also cats are pretty good jumpers, so I wouldn't be surprised if the cat was still able to get up there. You're not necessarily going to hurt the fledgling by getting your scent on it. The parent bird won't abandon it for that reason, but you're going to be adding a lot of stress to an already stressful situation. If you imagine you're a tiny bird hanging out on the ground, doing what you're supposed to do, learning from your parents, learning on your own, all of that good stuff, and then this big predator, because ultimately we are predators to these small birds, comes around over and picks you up and puts you up on a tall space. That's a pretty uh, intense scary situation. I wouldn't personally want to go through that. So probably best to just leave them alone and try and educate your neighbors to keep their cats inside. 
Yeah. And as you were talking about this, I admit, I, I didn't think too hard when I saw this response on the Facebook post, but hearing what you're saying, I'm also thinking you're drawing a lot of attention to that young bird and other predators like crows or ravens or like smart corvids may see this and, and be like, oh, there's an easy meal that you just put on a platform for me to come down and get. So yeah, I, it seems like just leave it alone is really the best thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're really concerned too, you can always uh, choose to create more of a wildlife habitat in your backyard, maybe put some bushes that could provide some shelter for them and hiding places. That's probably a better route to go than trying to intervene. Great ideas. Uh, and, and you were telling about some of the other common calls that you get this time of year. Yeah, we also get quite a few calls about coyotes, bats deciding to live in attics or on houses or just roosting on houses. Lot, lots of different ones. <laughs> you mentioned coyotes at the beginning and again, showing up in neighborhoods uh, this time of year. Is it? T tell me more about the coyote situation. Is it really just this time of year or are they semi-permanent urban residents these days? Yeah, so coyotes are pretty amazing critters. They've really adapted to live near humans quite well. They're opportunistic omnivores, so they'll eat just about anything. And our backyards typically provide a lot of amazing resources for them. Whenever we're putting out food for birds, we're attracting the predators of those birds. So a coyote cannot only eat the birds that are attracted to the bird feeders. They could eat the seeds if they really wanted to, and they could also eat the rodents that are also going to be attracted to those birds. So coyotes do a really great job of finding the resources in our neighborhoods and taking advantage of them, especially in Nevada, where it's a pretty arid environment. Our backyards also provide a lot of water resources for them. So it's really common to have them around urban areas year round. And do you see a trend with the coyotes? Is it pretty pretty steady population-wise, or are there more? I, I suppose as Reno is growing, like you said, there's probably more and more interactions with coyotes. So we don't have a ton of studies on coyotes and their population growth here in Nevada. They're actually considered to be an unprotected species. So I think the last estimate that was done said that it, statewide we have about 100,000, but that was done quite a few years ago. So it could be more or less. I don't have exact numbers that I could share with population growth or decline or anything like that. But from my experience growing up here, we've had coyotes here forever. Like I had them in that sagebrush patch behind my backyard growing up. They've been all in the hills behind neighborhoods, utilizing that sagebrush, the cottontails that live there, the jackrabbits, all of that. So they've always been around. I think that a lot of times that people who live in Nevada don't expect them there because we, at least in Reno, we're a pretty urban city. So seeing a coyote in your backyard is definitely a little jarring the first time because you don't expect them to be there. Oftentimes we think of wildlife being really scared of us and not wanting to live near us, but because we do provide those amazing resources to them, it really invites them into the area and they know how to take advantage of it. Previous guest, Dr. Peter Alagona, he has a book called The Unintended Ecosystem, which is about urban wildlife and the history. He's, he's an environmental historian. And in his book, there's a story about coyotes that live in downtown Chicago. So if they're in downtown Chicago, yeah, they're going to be in nearly any city that you could think of, I think, <laughs> in North America. Absolutely. They're even in Central Park in New York City. So they're certainly everywhere and they find little niches and are able to survive, which I think is pretty incredible because I don't know about you, but I do not want to live in New York City. <laughs> it's a little too urban for me, but there are coyotes that are like, this is amazing. So much food. 
when they're in these environments, are they still living in family groups or do they become more solitary or does that lifestyle change to adapt to the urban environment? So it really depends. We do have solitary ones. We also do have packs. Yeah, it doesn't really change too much from my understanding. We still have the pack structures and coyote dens scattered throughout the city and all of that. So they're still doing pretty much the same thing. They just might be shifting some of their food sources to be a little bit more general than a coyote that might live in the middle of Nevada where there's only really rabbits and small rodents that they get to eat. The coyotes here have a little bit more variety that they can take advantage of. They also, from other studies in other states, coyotes have smaller territories in urban environments because there's more of a density of food resources in urban areas than there are out in the wildland spaces. So we can have a few more packs than maybe would be in a similar space in a wildland area. I see. And something I've been thinking a lot about recently, and I I had a wonderful experience just a few nights ago. I was camping down at Pinnacles National Park and was aroused awake at 4 a.m. to a bunch of coyotes very nearby. Like they sounded like they could have been 50 feet away, yipping and howling and just kind of seemingly having a good old time yelling back and forth to each other. First of all, what is happening there when they're communicating like that? And do you, again, do you see a difference in an urban environment and how they communicate? So I don't really know if it's different in an urban environment. I don't speak coyote fluently, unfortunately. (laughs) I think that would be an amazing superpower to have. But typically, they're doing just that, communicating to one another. One of the common misconceptions about coyotes is that they'll howl when they have a kill, but typically coyotes are hunting by themselves. They're solitary hunters, and they're going after small food sources like rabbits and quail and small little rodents and those sort of items. So when you think about it, if you have a little rabbit and you're a coyote, you don't really want to announce to everyone else in the area that, hey, I have an amazing snack. I know that when I get a pizza... I keep it quiet from everyone else because I want to eat that whole pizza myself. So they don't typically howl and yip when they catch something. It's more just to, like you said, communicate to one another. Typically in those pack structures, they are there to defend their territory with one another. So it could be that maybe an intruder came in and they're trying to communicate that to one another. Many other different things that they're trying to talk to one another about, but usually it's not because they got something yummy to eat. It seems like an important point that you just made is that they are solitary hunters. They aren't like wolves that are uh, going to hunt in a pack, right? Yeah, exactly. It's usually just the one. Occasionally, you'll have two hunt together, but generally speaking, they're just on their own. So what other myths or public perception challenges do you have with respect to coyotes? One of the the biggest ones that we have here is that they're coming after humans and they're going to harm humans. Uh, Human-coyote conflicts are rare. Typically, when they do happen, it's because someone is actively helping the coyote associate people with food, whether that be putting out dog food for them or hand-feeding them or things like that, where they're actively trying to basically domesticate the animal or thinking that they're helping the animal, but ultimately it's harming them because they're losing that fear of humans. I suppose some of that could be accidental as well. If you like, so back to the outdoor cat thing, if you're putting food out for an outdoor cat, you're going to attract all sorts of wildlife and maybe unknowingly that some neighborhood coyote 
picks up on this and, and you don't even know that you're doing this and potentially leading that coyote into a negative encounter with people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, putting out food for really any kind of domestic animal is just going to increase the likelihood that you're going to have wild animals come into the area and slowly over time, they'll become habituated to humans and urban environments. So basically that just means that they're getting used to us and they no longer have that fear response. A a good example of that for humans is like when you move into a brand new house and maybe your refrigerator makes this humming noise. And for the first week, it just annoys you to no end. But then after a while, you slowly get used to it and you start to naturally ignore it. That's what you're doing when you're not actively scaring off coyotes or you're letting wild animals become comfortable in your backyard. And that can be detrimental to them as well as humans in some senses. The thought that sprang into my mind when I mentioned, okay, coyotes, they they do not hunt like a wolf hunts. And I know back east, there's actually been some papers written, some I think even some genetic analysis that shows that there's some hybridization occurring between wolves and coyotes. Or, or maybe it occurred in the distant past. I admit I'm not real up on the specifics of those studies, but they were published, I think, in Smithsonian Magazine and some other, you know, reputable places. Mm-hmm. Does such a thing exist out in the West? So we don't have an established population of wolves in Nevada. So there's really not that opportunity for them. Really haven't come into contact with anything like that. So I can't really speak to it. And this is just from my experience. Maybe someone else has, but I haven't really had any examples of koi wolves or koi dogs here. Maybe this could be a topic for a future episode. I'll I'll look into it and see if there's anyone willing to talk about it. Because it's fascinating, as I understand it, it does lead to some traits that are unique to a koi wolf that maybe makes them even more adaptable to living around people. Yeah, I'd be super interested to know more. I don't really have any experience with it. So much to learn. (laughs) Yeah, my favorite quote is, the more you learn, the less you know. And I feel like in this job, it is so true. (laughs) You learn one thing and then it adds like 50 other questions. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so I had to look up the Smithsonian article and the article says, well, here's a quote from it. Koi wolves are about 55 pounds heavier than pure coyotes with longer legs, a larger jaw, smaller ears, and a bushier tail. It is part eastern wolf, part western wolf, western coyote, and with a little bit of dog thrown in. It goes on to say, Coyotes dislike hunting in forests, but wolves prefer it. The interbreeding has produced an animal skilled at catching prey in both open terrain and densely wooded areas. So I also found an infographic on PBS's Nature website that I've linked to in the show notes. And it says that koi wolves actually date all the way back to at least 1919. So they've been around for a long time. And as far as the range, as far as I can tell, they're restricted to the northeastern United States and some of the bordering areas in Canada. Another one that I find really fascinating is bats. And again, I think this is something that could be applicable to much of the United States, much of the world, probably. I'm not sure the current bat situation in Europe. I, I grew up in the Midwest and we had bats in the summertime. We used to see them flying around at dusk, catching insects. Of course, out here in the West, there's a lot of bats. What are the types of encounters that you're seeing people calling about? You mentioned like getting into attics, for example. Yeah. So um, in Nevada, we have about 23, 24 species of bats, depending on the biologist you talk to. So we have a, a pretty diverse group of bats that we have here. So in urban environments, at least here in Reno, typically during the wintertime, they're not here. It's far too cold. They either migrate away or they'll hibernate. 
typically somewhere else, sometimes in people's homes, hopefully not, but occasionally that can happen. So we don't have a lot of activity during the late fall through winter time, but during the springtime, they'll either come out of hibernation or they'll migrate back up. Here in Reno, we have a bridge that gets a maternal roost of Brazilian free-tailed bats every single year, which is super exciting. And they come and eat up all of the mosquitoes for us, which I am totally grateful for because mosquitoes love me. But as for issues with urban areas, it can be anything from just a bat roosting in a patio. Occasionally they'll get inside of a house. Oftentimes it's people finding bats on the ground just sitting there and they're concerned that they're sick. So if you see a bat just sitting there, like I I had a scenario a few years ago where a bat showed up and was just clinging to the screen on a window. I just, I thought this is odd. And I just decided to leave it alone thinking, okay, it's going to move along when it's ready to. And then it stayed there all day in the sun. It's like, well, this doesn't seem right. And after about a day and a half, I went out to investigate it up close and it had, it had died. It came and attached to the screen for some reason. I don't know if it got stuck or if it was just sick and that was a last gasp or, or something. So in my scenario, maybe there's nothing I could have done, but but if somebody were to encounter a situation like that or a bat on the ground, what should they do? It kind of depends on the resources in the area. Typically, I like to suggest to people to just leave it alone for 24 hours and then revisit it because animals have different behaviors, some that we don't understand. Nature is super interesting and it's definitely not black or white. There's many different gray situations that can happen with that. So Usually I ask people to just leave it alone for 24 hours. If it's actively like hissing and screaming at you, then maybe a different strategy is needed. We did have to pick up one bat down in the Dayton area. This was years ago and it was actively hissing at us and that we got it tested and that actually came back positive for rabies. In that sort of situation, I would reach out to your local Department of Wildlife or um, sometimes animal services can also help with that. When you say actively hissing or acting aggressively like that, I assume that's like an unprovoked aggression. If you walked up and poked it with a stick and it hissed at you, like that would not be a sign of rabies. That's just leave me alone. Yeah, definitely. It, It would, we just walked out onto the patio and it was just like chirping and hissing and acting very not like a normal bat would. Mm -hmm. Typically the bats that I see that maybe have grounded themselves are just sitting there or like trying to crawl up to a place where they can fly off. So if it's acting super strange like that, I would definitely call someone right away. But if it's just hanging out, doing anything super abnormal, typically leaving them for a little bit just to see if they'll move on their own is really important. It's also important to take into account the time of year, especially during like migration season. If you have a single bat hanging out on your porch roosting, they might just be taking a rest from that migration. So they might be there for a few days or a week or so and then take off. Ah, Just like birds, they sometimes will stop over, fuel up and then proceed. Exactly. So you mentioned the benefits of bats and, and how they protect you from the mosquitoes that, that seem to uh, enjoy feasting on you so much. Do you see the public recognizing the benefits of creatures like bats more and more, or is there still outreach needed to help people understand the, the benefits that come along with some of these wild animals? I think there's always more education that we can do. I think it's important to recognize we all have different wildlife values. So the more we can talk about the benefits of different animals, the better we are 
as a human race. For bats, I think that it's gotten a lot better, especially from the time when before I was born. You had like Merlin Tuttle, who was a huge advocate for bats and really helping to change people's views about bats. I do see more people getting more excited about bats than I think there were in the past. There, a lot of people don't necessarily consider them little rodents with wings anymore, which they're not. They're very different from rodents. They're in a completely different family. But I think that was a lot of what people used to view them as, and more people are viewing them as a helpful source. They give us so many different benefits, like tequila wouldn't be possible without bats. Bats pollinate the agave plants, so that's an amazing benefit. They pollinate many other plants. They save Texas farmers hundreds of thousands of dollars every year in pest control, eating the little moths that take advantage of the, I think it's the corn crop. So they do a lot of services that we didn't really know years ago. Are they susceptible to insecticide problems? So if people are treating, like say we're doing mosquito spraying or things like that, and you have insects that have insecticide in them and the bat comes along and eats it, are they are they being affected by that? I'm actually not sure on the answer to that one. I would imagine it's much like rodenticides and mammals, but I'm not sure. So I looked into this as well, and there's a good reason why Jessica wasn't sure, because it seems like there aren't great studies on this. So here's what I found. It seems that bats are very likely susceptible to the negative effects from ingesting insects that have been poisoned with insecticide. However, my cursory search didn't yield any great studies directly confirming this. So most of the studies were either behind paywalls or simply confirmed that there was the existence of pesticides in the blood and tissue samples from bats. In the latter case, it was not much of a leap to just assume that this would be bad, but these studies did not confirm any symptoms or indications that could be tied to the pesticides. A common refrain in these studies and in some of the journalistic articles as well that interpret them is that bats are often overlooked and there are inadequate funds to really validate what these impacts are. So I've included links to a couple articles that I found that aren't behind paywalls in the show notes. So just like with coyotes and the myths or misperceptions that exist, are there any other ones with bats that you'd like to highlight? I think another one that people often think is that all bats have rabies. That's a pretty common misconception for that. And in Nevada, less than 1% of bats actually do have rabies. And rabies is something that any mammal can really have. So it's not just a bat-specific problem. So just because you have bats that are living near you definitely does not mean that you're going to contact rabies or be exposed to rabies or anything like that. Don't you actually have to be bitten or have some sort of like blood contact or something to, to get rabies? Yeah, there have been cases where people have gotten it in like a lab environment with really close contact to the the virus. There have been instances of people breathing it in and get contacting it that way. But typically for you or me, where we're not working directly with bats every single day, we're not trying to touch a bat, the likelihood of us contracting rabies, very, very, very small. I do suggest whenever people do find a bat that's maybe on the ground or a dead bat, make sure you're not touching it. That's going to be your best protection is just leave the wildlife alone and let them do their thing and and you should be totally fine. And this may be a good transition to uh, a few questions that I always ask my Patreon patrons if they have any questions for upcoming guests. And I had one that says, we have a couple old bat boxes that don't seem to be in use. Should we try to refurbish them or replace them entirely besides putting up 
the boxes? Is there a way to attract bats to these boxes? So I guess that opens up a maybe a broader set of questions like bat boxes, yes or no? Do you do you encourage them? Yeah, I personally love bat boxes. I think they're a super nice way to give bats an option to be in our urban environments, but maybe not necessarily on or in our homes. So giving them a different roosting spot is great. One of my favorite resources for bat boxes is BatCon International. They have a bunch of information on how to put up bat boxes, the proper placement of bat boxes, and all of that. So I would definitely check out their website and you can get even instructions on how to build them if that's something that you're interested in doing. Yeah, I just assume, I haven't investigated myself, but I assume it is important to place them in locations with certain temperatures, certain shading or openness, ability to access. There's probably lots of considerations that go into that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not just a set in place sort of thing that you can do. You definitely have to have it angled a certain way and use certain materials and all of that to attract them into the area. And do you know, is there, I assume there's some sort of ongoing maintenance, like do, do if you have a bat block box, are you cleaning it every winter or uh, anything like that? Or you just let the bats do their thing? I imagine you would want to probably clear it out a little bit, especially for the guano that gets kind of potent after a while. So you can clean up the area around the bat box, get some of that guano and use it as fertilizer in your garden. That's probably more for the benefit of us humans than the bats, but that would definitely be something I would consider and try and keep up on. As you can tell, I haven't personally tried bat boxes. I've wondered about it because I do see bats around here, but I haven't gotten to that stage yet. It's on my list as well. <laughs> yeah. Another question I, I received, I'm not sure what the fox situation is, is like in, in your neck of the woods, but the this listener says that they have a family of red foxes that live underneath their shed. And should we try to discourage, discourage them to leave? I, I don't know if he meant encourage or discourage. I'm not sure. So I guess, what should we do? And is there any danger to the concrete foundation under the shed? Yeah, so I would discourage them from being in the area more depending on how you feel about it. They could definitely get into things that maybe your neighbors have and your neighbors might not like it. So living in these urban areas, we do have to be considerate of what our neighbors' needs might be. So typically for the benefit of the animal, I usually suggest to encourage them to maybe find a more natural place to live that won't impact your neighbors as much. So you can do simple things like playing a radio right next to the den to encourage them to leave that way. Um, just modify the area so that they don't really want to be in that space anymore. Also look around the area, see what maybe they're getting into when it comes to food or water. Obviously, you know what their shelter is. It's underneath your shed. But trying to remove those food and water resources to encourage them to leave that way. If you do notice that they do have kits in the den or in the area, I would probably hold off until they're done with that season. And there you can then you can encourage them to leave on their own. But that'll just be a good thing for them in general because that's gonna discourage them from living in urban areas and then it's also going to discourage them from wanting to be near humans, which is typically best for everyone involved. And as for the danger to your concrete foundation, I'm not the most handy of people, so I can't really speak to that. But I would definitely encourage you, once you do get them to leave, to take a look underneath there and fill it in as much as you can. I suppose it would probably have to do with how dug under the shed is and how big their den is if the, the concrete foundation is compromised in some way. Yeah, I could see that. If you don't have 
structure underneath the concrete that probably does put it at risk. And For just sure. to, this is maybe an insight into the warped mind that I have. But when you talked about putting a radio near the foxes to help encourage them to leave, I'm thinking, you know what, you could do two things at once there. You could actually encourage them to leave, but also study their musical preferences and see see exactly what it is that gets them to leave. Absolutely. Do they like metal? Are they more of a classical rock kind of kind of fox? Okay, and you supplied a couple other common questions that you get. One being there are raccoons frequenting our yards or going into storm drains. What should we do? Yeah, so another critter that has really done well living near humans are raccoons. Just like the coyote, they are omnivores, so they'll eat just about anything. Kind of how they got their name, Trash Panda. You can often find them in garbage, rooting around trying to find delicious treats that we didn't want to eat. So they are pretty common in our neighborhoods, and they'll actually use storm drains as little highways to get around a city. So what I usually suggest when raccoons are coming into the area is to for sure look around and see what resources they're taking advantage of. So pet food left outside, water dishes, trash, compost, bird seed. All of those sort of things can encourage raccoons to come into the area as well as stay in the area. So trying to remove those and remove that habitat from them is going to be where you want to start. And that's going to really ultimately be your long-term solution to any kind of wildlife issues that you might come into contact with. You always want to think like an animal, look at what they're accessing, and try and remove that to encourage them to leave. You can also do things like hazing, clapping your hands, banging some pots and pans together, yelling at them when you do see them in the area, just to further encourage them to move on and recognize that people are scary and you don't want to live near them, so find someplace else to go. And then if you do have doggy doors or pet doors that have access into your house, keeping those closed is really important because we have had issues where raccoons are super smart and they decide, hey, there's dog food right inside this store. I'm just going to go in, take a few bites and then get out of here. So not something that you really want to have inside of your house. <laughs> yeah, raccoons are incredibly intelligent. I'm endlessly fascinated by the stories and anecdotes that I hear from people about what raccoons are capable of and what they've done. And I'm guessing just given the climate of Reno, that this may not be as big of an issue where you're at, but here in the Bay Area and through lots of the rest of the U.S., a lot of people have grass lawns and grubs. It seems like raccoons like to dig up lawns in search of grubs. So I, the connection that was created in my head was like, it's another reason to plant some native plants in your yard and get rid of that lawn. Because now you don't have to worry about this raccoon coming along or the troop of raccoons coming along and digging up your lawn overnight. Absolutely. And it benefits all the other native wildlife too. So yep. it's a good option for sure. We have a lot of raccoons in our area. In fact, just last night, my, my wife commented that she saw a raccoon prints on our front walkway and I've seen them in my backyard and we haven't had any negative encounters with them. So I haven't really found a reason to do anything. But I suppose that in a situation like that, it's, would your recommendation be like, yeah, just status quo, let them do their thing? Yeah, I think it's just important to recognize that even if you're okay with it, your neighbors might not be okay with it. So long-term for the animal, discouraging them from being in the area is probably best for them. I personally wouldn't care if there was a raccoon in my yard, but there are other people who do. So just in general, I try and discourage wildlife. 
just to be mindful of neighbors and maybe their desire to have those animals removed. I see. Yeah, that's a good point. You had one other question that intrigued me that apparently you've gotten multiple times. I I found a duck nest in my backyard, but we're far away from water. Is this normal? What should I do? That's a common question that you get? Absolutely. Yeah. We get lots of questions on nesting locations of birds. They can find themselves in some pretty odd locations inside people's wreaths, not necessarily ducks, of course, but little songbirds will use wreaths as a little nice little nesting spot. But ducks frequently will nest in people's backyards, even if they are like a mile or two away from a water source. And it's a pretty common occurrence, especially here in Nevada, where we don't necessarily have a lot of water in the area. So the best thing to do if you do come into this situation is to respect the duck. They have made their decision with everything. There are good parents and bad parents, and sometimes they make odd decisions when it comes to nesting locations and sometimes they just find that it's a really safe place for them to be and they like it and so we need to respect that they're also federally protected so it's illegal to remove them sidebar there but when they do hatch out the best thing you can do is give them an option to leave so if you have a gate just prop that open give them a few hours to find their way out you can even act like a little border collie gently clap your hands and guide them out so that they're They have the option to go wherever they want to go. From there, we usually leave them alone and let them find their their way in the world. Most of these ducks and geese nesting in backyards are urban birds, so they do have to learn to navigate a city um, in order to be successful. And if you're trying to capture a bunch of little ducks and goslings, you're putting them and their parents under an incredible amount of stress. And typically the parents will fly off and not let you catch them. So then you potentially have a bunch of abandoned ducklings on your hands. So really leaving it to the parents and letting them go on their way is the best thing you can do for them. Give them the option to leave if they want to, and then provide that safe path out. One of the principles to consider there, well, actually, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm interested now though. (laughs) Okay, so I I will. So if you see a nest and you're thinking, wow, this is in a weird spot, why is it here? A a common thing for birds is like where they spend their days, where they're foraging for food is very often not where they're going to nest. They're going to be on the outskirts of that. They want access to that food, but it's not like a duck is going to build a nest right on the side of the lake where all the other ducks and all the other predators and all the other people come and, and, and use that habitat. So it makes sense that they know what they're doing. The ducks knew what they were doing by putting that nest in your yard. And uh, presumably they know what they're doing to help raise their young and get them out of there as well. Exactly. Yeah. Like we are definitely not uh, duck parents. (laughs) (laughs) So we we don't know what they're, they're thinking, but it's best to just leave them to make those decisions for themselves. You need two superpowers. One is to speak coyote and the other is to think like a duck and and then you'll be set. (laughs) That would be amazing. If I could just, I think that question that comes up all the time, like if you could pick any superpower, what would it be? Mine would definitely be like, talk to animals. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Third interruption. I promise it's the last. So as I'm going through the edit, I realized that I really wasn't very clear at all here with what I was trying to communicate. And I think that the problem is that nature is nuanced. So as I listen to this, I'm like, yeah, you know, I didn't really get the point across real well. What I was attempting to say is that nest selection really involves a balance of site safety, which often means secrecy with the energy requirements of building and getting back and forth from the nest to the foraging grounds. So ducks being large birds, 
have a little more trouble with the secrecy side of the equation. And sometimes they might have to go a little bit further away to find that security that they need. Mallards, for example, are ground nesters. So they do want some concealment. So a backyard a few blocks away from a city park might work out perfectly for them. Of course, there are always exceptions, such as if there's a protected island in that body of water or some other inaccessible area, maybe they'll nest right there, right next to the body of water. And of course, other birds are less selective and seem to just use a throw as many nesting attempts as possible at the problem, hoping for success. Yes, I'm looking at you, Morning Dove. Okay, now on to the wrap-up with Jessica. So if you could magically impart one ecological concept that you've learned or you've observed to help the general public see the world as you see it, what would that be? The biggest point that I would want everyone to understand is we're all looking for different ways to survive. We're all trying to survive on Earth, in the world, and wildlife is really no different. They're just trying to find the resources that will allow them to continue to live and continue their life cycle. So when you do approach urban wildlife issues, it's important to think about the species that you're interacting with or trying to discourage from being in the area or even encourage when it comes to birds or animals like that. So look around your space. What's attracting them? How are they using your neighborhoods as a benefit to themselves? And then you can act accordingly that way. So really you gotta put yourself in the skin of the coyote or the raccoon and look at your space holistically as a whole and to really figure out why they're there and why they're coming into the area and what they're using. And I think that having that perspective and having a little bit of empathy with that idea of we're all just trying to survive would really help with a lot of those urban wildlife issues that do come up. Yeah, I like how when we were corresponding, you wrote that wild animals don't show up to put a burden on us. They show up because we provide for them. And, you know, that's essentially what you just said. But uh, I, that phrasing is is very nice and I think positions it really well. One thing that I was really wanting to ask you, you know, we talked about some of your recent encounters with wildlife and more generally in, in the time you've been in this position, what is the one wildlife encounter that you've had that really stands out and jumps to mind? If like you were at a party and someone's like, tell me the most interesting, crazy, funniest story that you've had, what would that be? Oh gosh, there are probably too many to count, but I think the one that like haunts me, and it's not even actual wildlife, but there is this little wetland area in Reno and they have the coyote effigy that sits out on this little bank and hangs out there all of the time. It's there year round. And I think they use it to try and discourage geese or something in the area. And it, it doesn't really work really well because there are tons of geese and waterfowl all over the space. But every year, at least once or twice, I get calls about that coyote. And I know exactly where it's located. And people are like, there's a dog or a coyote. Or uh, this past week, it was a sheep on this little island and it needs help. And I have to break it to them that it is, in fact, a plastic coyote. So that one brings me great joy every year. We've even had news articles written about it. And I totally get it because it's on a really busy roadway. And when you're just going by, it looks like this poor little animal is stuck on this island and it doesn't really move. It stays there. And if you keep going by, it's just staying in the same spot. So totally understandable that you think that it's hurt or in need of help somehow, but it is in fact just a plastic little coyote. <laughs> yeah. It, it must be so petrified. It hasn't moved in days. It's yeah. <laughs> standing perfectly still. Yep. <laughs> 
It reminds me of the first time I saw one of those plastic owls people put out to try to discourage birds from roosting on buildings. Like the first time I saw one of those, I'm like, wow, it's a great horned owl. What's it doing out in the middle of the day? And then later it's yep. still there. There must be something wrong with it. Like the sun is shining right on it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's a funny one. I think I read one of the stories about that and it's near the airport so it's it seems like that's reasonable but just like with those owls after a short period of time i think all the wildlife just acclimates to it and they don't even see it like that running refrigerator uh, example <laughs> that you mentioned before exactly yeah if you are going to use them they are good tools but you just have to keep moving them putting them and leaving them in one spot is eventually going to do nothing for you <laughs> this has been really enjoyable and fun and i hope that you've enjoyed it as well and before we depart though i want to hear about any upcoming projects that you're working on you'd like to highlight or what's on your radar what are you looking to learn next or, or do next yeah so i'm actually uh shifting away from the urban wildlife position so instead of being urban wildlife focused i'm just going to be general wildlife education focused so I'm really excited for that. It means I get to do a lot more things with kids and come up with uh, kid-related programming, which is one of my favorite things to do. And then we're also going to be piloting our Urban Wildlife High School program this coming fall, which is really exciting. We've got a lot of different programming for K-12, through but one of the areas where we felt like we were missing is that high school group. So we've created a three-part program for them, specifically focusing on urban wildlife and urban wildlife topics and issues that, that come up. So hoping to get some kiddos into excited about the field in general, but then also just generally knowing what to do and why we make the decisions that we make and ways that they can live with wildlife and teach others to live with wildlife. And so it's a high school program. Is it then open to anybody in the state of Nevada, any biology or science teacher that wants to participate? Yeah, so we're going to start the pilot this fall, I believe, and we're going to just start with five to six classes in each of our regions because we want to get feedback on it before we really open it up to everyone else. Makes sense. But if you, yeah, but if you're interested, definitely let me know. We have three different regions, so we are broken up into three. There's the eastern region, western, and then southern, and we'll do about five to six in the western and southern and one to two in our eastern region. And then we'll hopefully go from there and expand it even more. Sounds exciting. And you said people can reach out to you. So how can people contact you or follow your work or follow the Department of Wildlife? Yeah, so we are on almost all social media. You can look us up the Nevada Department of Wildlife. You can look us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter even. And then that's where a lot of our work gets posted. And if you want to follow me personally, I have an Instagram it's not a very inventive name. It's jawolf93. But you can definitely follow me there. You'll find wildlife content, as well as dog content and gardening content, and occasionally some worms, because I've got a vermicompost that I'm super excited about. <laughs> wow. I'll definitely inspect that and look for that. So is there anything else that we didn't cover that you were really hoping to talk about or any parting words? I think the last thing I would really just love people to understand, you, you brought up the, the quote that I had in there, but wildlife really... They're not there to put a burden on us, and we really do provide them with such amazing habitat. So keeping that in mind whenever you're having any sort of interaction is really important. And just to keep in mind that they are trying to survive, and they're just doing what they need to do. Yep. I like to think that a lot of my regular listeners are on the same wavelength with that sentiment, but when it comes to interacting with wildlife out in the wild, 
and then suddenly it becomes your backyard. I know people's views can suddenly change dramatically in that scenario. It's good to hear that message, and I thank you for sharing it today. Jessica, yeah, thank you so much for all the time you spent today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I am really looking forward to hearing this, and thank you for spreading the message about urban wildlife and all wildlife issues. It's really needed. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work, so please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support, so check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you. Thank you.